Good morning. Good to see you guys again this morning. You can go ahead and turn to specifically Zechariah chapter 5 this morning. We're going to spend our time in that chapter. Um, This is the second sermon on Zechariah. We're in a series here going through the minor prophets and usually taking two weeks for each minor prophet. So Nate's taken a couple. I've taken a couple. We've had a few other people come in. And, um, and we'll have a few other people coming in. So we're going through these little prophets at the back end of your Old Testaments. And Zechariah is a tough one. It's a tough one because it's strange. We looked at that last week. It's a tough one because it's longer. It's 14 chapters. And I, I've kind of wrestled with what to do with all 14 of these chapters. Um, in the end, the way that I'm approaching this in these two sermons is... I'm kind of trying to just give you an introduction to the book and lead you in the front door, show you a few things, but you've got to really explore this one on your own. I don't have the opportunity to to spend like a 12-week series in Zechariah. Someday, perhaps, maybe we'll do that on a class or something like that, but right now, I'm just showing you like the living room and a glimpse of the kitchen, but you need to go in and check out all the other stuff because there's some pretty fascinating stuff in this book, and seeing how it all fits together, I think, is, is really helpful. So this is really part two of a two-part sermon rather than the second sermon in a series. Um, For those of you that were not here last week, you can watch that other sermon or listen to it, and I would really encourage you to do that. I'm going to build off of that foundation. Some of the things that I'll say may not make uh, full sense unless you really dive into what we talked about last week. I'll try to explain all that, but this is really kind of the second piece of that, um, that building that we're, we're, we're going through. Zechariah chapter 5. I'm going to read this text later. So I wanted you to get there because some of you don't know where Zechariah is. And hopefully you're starting to get close. Um, we'll be there in just a minute. Um, we're going to kind of slowly get there though. All right. Let's pray because this is going to get a little strange this morning. <laughs> and we need God's help with a book like this. We need God's help wherever we're at in His Word because it's His Spirit speaking through His Word that we desperately long for. Let's pray. Father, by your Spirit this morning, would you illuminate the Scriptures for us so that your Son is revealed and glorified this morning? In His precious name we ask this. Amen. Well, last week we kind of talked about the approach to a confusing book like Zechariah. And we used the metaphor, the illustration of a puzzle. I put that out here on the, on the stage, dumped it out, and it just terrified and horrified some of you that that puzzle was not finished or even approached. How many of you are like that? You were like, Whoa, put the puzzle together. I know I've heard from a few of you that you actually put a puzzle together this week because it just triggered something in you and you wanted to. Enjoy that process. I won't ask how many of you read Zechariah, because that was really discouraging last week, and I don't want to find out. Everybody did a puzzle, but nobody read Zechariah. <laughs> I'm just going to assume everybody read Zechariah, and that, yeah, I'm just going to go that direction. The, the reason we talked about the puzzle is because Zechariah is a puzzling book. So many um, church leaders over the course of history have used that language. This is puzzling. And so we took that illustration, that image, and said, as you, read a, as you do a puzzle, the first thing you do is you flip over the pieces and you just survey what do you have in the box? What's here? What does this look like? What colors and shapes and what 
What do you, what, what do you see? And so we looked through Zechariah and we just surveyed it. We saw that the first six chapters of Zechariah were these series of visions that God gives to Zechariah. The last five chapters of Zechariah are these series of prophetic oracles, these pronouncements, these prophecies that God gives to his people through Zechariah, these words of great promise at the end of the book. And those words, as you see them in the end of the book, you can trace them back through the whole book and just see that this theme of promise just runs through this wonderful book. In the middle of the book, there's a story. There's a story of this delegation that comes from the city of Bethel up to Jerusalem to the temple where Zechariah was likely serving as a priest. And they come asking, do we need to continue to fast? We've gone through this time of hardship. God has, um, God has disciplined us as a people. We're, we're fasting in repentance. Do we need to continue to do this? And what they're essentially asking is the critical piece to Zechariah, I would argue. They're asking is God still with us? Is God still faithful to his promises? And the book of Zechariah is organized and written to say, yes, God is still faithful to his promises. And it's even better than you can imagine. So that's what we did when we flipped over the pieces. We worked on putting up the borders, understanding the history of the book. This happened after the Jewish people were taken into exile in Babylon. Their cities and nation was just leveled. The temple was destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem were torn down. But they had started a, a trickle back to the city of Jerusalem. But it was to a city that was a shadow of its former glory. This is also apocalyptic literature, which means it's symbolic and strange to us. It's meant to provoke wonder as we read it and hear it and study it. Sometimes this symbolic language that we'll encounter today is used because the truth can't be contained in simple vocabulary. And so the biblical authors and God through the biblical authors would use these images to just emotionally and symbolically draw people in either in horror or in the beauty of what is proclaimed here. Sometimes truth can't be contained in language. You need a picture. And that's what apocalyptic literature does. So those are the borders that we put up in our puzzle of Zechariah. Then we put together the easy pieces. We started to say, what's the big theme here? In answer to that question, is God still with his people? Will he honor his promises or his covenant Zechariah's theme is that God is still with his people and his promises are even better than they can imagine. Repeatedly throughout the book, you get this phrase, I will be the glory in her midst. And it's God promising in that day to come back to Jerusalem, to, to, that the temple will be rebuilt. This is a profoundly encouraging promise for a people who are returning from exile who had lost everything, had a devastated city in their midst, and a vague memory of Israel's former glory. I will be in her midst, God said. And that was fulfilled. They saw the temple rebuilt, stage one of that fulfillment. Hundreds of years later, Jesus came into this world and fulfilled it on a whole different level. He said, my body is this temple. This is how you will have a sacrifice through my body. This is where you can worship God, it's through me. 
few decades later, God's spirit was poured out on the church and God dwelled with his people, dwelt with his people in the church. And that promise made in Zechariah's day that I will be in her midst, that promise made through so many of the Old Testament prophets, took on a new level of fulfillment as the spirit was given to the church and dwells in her midst. And one day, this promise will be fulfilled in even greater measure as Christ returns. And Revelation points, paints that picture. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Revelation 21.3. So the easy part of Zechariah is seeing that theme as you work through the book, that God has been and will continue to be faithful to his promise. He will deal with his people as their God, as their king, and as their savior. But the puzzle's not put together yet. We still have the hard part. There's still like that blue sky that we don't know which piece fits where, and it's just going to take some time and work and patience. Now, let me, let me just take a break here and um, say, for those of you that are kids, and probably some of you adults will get into this as well, we're going to look at four different um, night visions that Zachariah has. And if you have a blank piece of paper, especially you kids, but some of you adults, give this a go too, Take your pen or your crayons or your marker or whatever you have in front of you and try to draw these things as we, as we talk through them. It's kind of a fun exercise. I did this once when I taught Daniel in a youth group. We put up these giant like papers on the wall and we were working through the back half of Daniel and there's all these beasts coming out of the ocean with different animal heads and fun stuff like that. And it was, it was terrifying at the end because we had this giant like uh, mural on our youth group wall at this church in Michigan. So some of you kids, just as I talk through these, um, through these, 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 uh, these four visions, just draw them. And you can kind of maybe draw four different pictures, and I would love to see them at the end of the service. And, you know, if you're like a 45-year-old dude and you want to draw it too, that's cool. Um, and I would love to see your pictures as well. Um, I'm just not going to give you candy in, in, uh, in praise or anything like that. So this is the hard part of Zacharias because we land on some of these images, we land on some of these visions that he receives, and we just get stuck. What do you do with that? So as we go through this, keep that easy part in mind. That's our, that's our anchor, that God has been and will continue to be faithful to his promise. He will dwell with his people. Now, as you work on a puzzle... And if you've worked on a hard puzzle and you've hit those points where you just don't know what to do, there's a couple things you can do. The first thing you might do is bring in an expert, right? You're just stuck on this puzzle and you're like, I need new eyes on this puzzle. And as you're reading scripture, you might hit those spots. I don't know what to do with this text. Well, call up somebody in your discipleship group or a friend or your spouse and say, what do you see here? Help me with this. And that can be a really beneficial thing as you're trying to understand what God has said in his word. The other thing you might do, and this is true for Zechariah or for a puzzle, so you take this application whichever direction you want in those two things. The other thing you might do is just stand up, take a walk, and a break from staring at the puzzle in front of you. Sometimes our eyes or our mind just need that break. It's helpful with a puzzle, and to be honest, as I studied Zechariah over the last few weeks, it was helpful with Zechariah. I just needed to stand up, and as the weather warmed, take a little walk, come back, and think through it some more. Last, be patient. Be patient. This is not meant to be easy, straightforward reading. 
It's meant to provoke wonder and mystery. And so don't be okay with that. Be okay with that. There's parts of it that are straightforward. Understand that. But be okay with the mystery of some of this. There's this great scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The children are introduced to the character of Aslan for the first time. It's the, the beaver family telling them about Aslan, and they, they give him his name, and it'll tell them a little bit about Aslan. And here's what Lewis says as the children experience the introduction to Aslan. He says, None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. And here's what I want you to capture. Perhaps it is something, perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning. I think there's Zachariah in that. You're like, I don't understand this, but that seems really important. Either a terrifying one, terrifying meaning, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sense of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Now think about that. Because we're going we're gonna to look at four different dreams this morning. And they will be mysterious. And there will be some sense that there's something there. I don't fully understand that. But it seems like it has enormous meaning. Dreams are mysterious. You know this when you wake up from a dream. Like That was, that was weird. You just wake up and you just have to, it takes you a while to adjust back to reality. I still remember a dream when I was probably about six or seven years old. Like most six or seven year old boys, I was a knight in a battle, right? So I was in this giant medieval battle and I had my sword and I'm going off and slaying my enemies and conquering my foes. But at the end of this dream, someone got me. And they stabbed me in the side right about here. And I remember waking up from this dream and my side just hurt badly. You ever wake up from a dream and like there's a physical reality that somehow corresponds to what you were experiencing in your dream? It is so weird, right? Dreams are mysterious. We don't know what we've just experienced. And so that's maybe a little of the feeling you'll get as you enter these dreams. So let's, let's get into them. The first four chapters of Zechariah have five different visions or dreams that Zechariah records. And they're all about God returning to Jerusalem. God rebuilding his temple, making a place for, him, for, for his people to worship him. As it turns to chapter 5, the dreams change. And it's not about God coming to Jerusalem. It's about other things happening in Jerusalem, sometimes about things going out from God or from Jerusalem. So let's take these one at a time. Here's the first one. Get your pens out. Get ready to draw this one. A vision of a flying scroll. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, this angel that was with Zechariah, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. 
Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones." So if you're an artist right now, you've got some fun tasks ahead of you. Enjoy it. Here, God is showing through this dream vision that Zechariah receives that sin is being revealed. That he is, He's showing the people their sin, their wickedness. And it's this, this flying scroll. It's almost like, I don't know if there's words up there right now, but you know, it's like a projector screen for us, right? Zechariah didn't have that image, but that's kind of the image there. It's these words that are just hovering over people. Or maybe even like that, that banner that flies over the football games um, you know, and tells you to buy your used cars at wherever. That, that kind of image is what's happening. It's this rather large scroll, if you want, Bible scholars to argue, ask them how big a cubit is, and you'll get all kinds of fun answers. Somewhere in the range of 30 feet by 15 feet-ish, it's a big scroll. And it's just kind of roaming around the land. On one side, it has all this curse against those who are stealing. On the other side, it has this curse, these laws against those who are swearing falsely or practicing deception. And in fact, those things are a, a small sub-theme throughout the book of Zechariah. These, these people who, who cheat and steal and deceive people. They're condemned throughout the book of Zechariah. It, it, it really looks at the marketplace. We'll get to this again in a second. Of those who are in business, who are, who are um, stealing from others, who are deceiving others. And God goes after them because it's breaking his commandments. It's breaking his law that he has established. These things matter to God, and they will be judged. God's judgment will be consuming. It will wipe out their houses, in verse 4 it says. So remember the big question, is God with us? This doesn't necessarily answer the question, because it says God's law is with us, but that's terrifying, right? When sin is simply revealed, all it does is provoke Fear, repentance, maybe. But God, at this, at this juncture, at this vision, doesn't seem to be able to dwell with his people. There's a condemnation here. There's a harsh reality of God's holiness and the people's sin. So let's move to the next vision. And this gets weirder. You saw it last week. Then the angel, verse 5, this is your next picture if you're drawing, got to draw fast this morning. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? 
He said to me, to the land of Shinar, another name for Babylon, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. This is probably the strangest vision that Zechariah received. You heard it last week. Let's get into some of the details here because it's quite interesting. A basket is the Hebrew word ephah, and it's a, essentially a measuring basket for the marketplace. If you were going to buy some grain or some flour or some various items, various baskets would be used as measuring tools to tell you how much you had purchased. Often, the business people in the marketplace, the traders in the marketplace, would use these to deceive them. You know, put in false bottoms and shrink it a little bit or somehow use different um, ways to take advantage of their customers. So again, you see this deception, this cheating that comes up that God condemns. The basket in this vision is a parody of the Ark of the Covenant as well. In the Ark of the Covenant, God dwelt with his people. There was a mercy seat that covered that Ark. And here you see a leaden cover. God's presence was concentrated at the Ark of the Covenant. And here you see wickedness contained in the Ark, or in this fake Ark, the anti-Ark. The Ark of the Covenant had two winged creatures over it, the cherubim. And here you see two winged stork women taking this basket to Babylon. So there's a, a parody that's going on in this vision. A couple of notes here. One thing is notice that wickedness is contained. That's quite staggering. God contains wickedness. It doesn't roam free. God controls it and deals with it here. God's glory had left the temple, had left Jerusalem. If you want to read a sad commentary on that, read Ezekiel chapter 10. God's glory departs from the temple because of the people's wickedness. And now, as God's return to Jerusalem comes in the early part of Zechariah, wickedness is being taken away. Now, there's, there's some details here that I'm not sure what to do with, and everybody disagrees if you start to read the commentaries. One detail that's fascinating is the stork wings. <laughs> Why a stork, right? Why a stork? Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14 talk about a stork. Maybe you didn't know this. In the list of animals forbidden to eat that because of their uncleanliness is the stork. You shall not eat a stork. So for a Jewish person in Zechariah's day to hear stork would trigger a feeling of revulsion, of disgust. This is unclean. Stay away from it. But at the same time, in the wings of this, these stork women, <laughs> there's wind. You see that comment there in verse 9? The wind in their wings. It's not a Bette Midler reference there. It's this, this wind thing. Sorry. I didn't plan that one. Wind in the Hebrew also is a way to refer to God's spirit. God's spirit. This is God's agent that is taking away wickedness from the presence of his people. God's agent is unclean in order to remove wickedness from the presence of his people. Do you see how these images are kind of pulling together to, to show that, that God is using this? Ponder that for a second. 
God is using something unclean to remove wickedness from his people. Deuteronomy 21. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Paul references this in Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus himself became a curse so that he could rescue his people from the curse. God used something unclean, a man hanging on a tree, to remove sin from his chosen people. The the picture in Zechariah is drawn. We don't know exactly what it is, but you start to think through what God is doing in Zechariah, and Jesus is glorified. God must remove sin in order to dwell in his people's midst. Is God with us? We can't stand in front of him because his law is holy and we are not holy. Is God with us? Well, God needs to remove sin in order to dwell in his people's midst. And then we get another vision. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horse Horses go toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses come out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Another confusing, strange vision. Tolkien would use this vision to kind of come up with his image of the Nazgul. And you can see, you probably heard it. Some of you were already thinking that as you heard these horsemen going out to patrol the earth. But really this is a picture of judgment, a judgment against sin. Many of the horses go to the north country. It's another way to say Babylon, that sin will be judged in Babylon. What went to Babylon earlier? What went to Shinar? Well, this wickedness was taken to Babylon. And now these horses are going to the north country to judge sin, to punish sin. God sees, God knows, and God judges. Next vision. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Judah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne." 
and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Vision of a crown and a temple comes to bear here. And this mysterious branch figure is introduced, but not really explained very much. The priest is given a crown. That image is mysterious to a Jewish person. And it would be probably fulfilled in Zechariah's day as the priest Joshua ruled in some way as the temple was constructed, but it would be taken again to a new level of fulfillment in Jesus because his body serves as a temple, provides sacrifice for the people's sin. Jesus will bear royal honor, reference to verse 13. Jesus will sit and rule as our high priest and as our eternal king. He will usher in peace over his kingdom eternally. Isaiah 9 references this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. If God is to be with his people, not only does sin need to be removed, but the people need a priest. They need a priest. They need a sacrifice. And God in Christ provides that. But not just a priest, not just a sacrifice. Also a king, one who will rule on the throne eternally, as Isaiah prophesies and as John reminds us in the book of Revelation. Jesus is not just our priest. Jesus is not just our king. Jesus is our priest king. Praise the Lord for Jesus. So, you've seen these night visions. You've got some half-drawn pictures in front of you, perhaps. You can finish those later. Night visions are these pictures of judgment, of justice, of restoration, of mercy that God will fulfill in wave after wave of honoring his promises. Our dreams tend to be connected to events or memories in our past, right? Usually you think through your dreams, you're like, oh, I watched that show or I ate that burrito and that's why I had that dream. Zachariah's dreams don't look at the past so much as they look towards a future, something that God will do in Israel, and that God will do beyond Israel. So let me try to bring these four visions together and see how they fit. Because Zechariah is not just a bunch of random scenes. There's a connection here. Remember, remember our easy part, though, that question. Is God still with us in the dark times? Well, the flying scroll adds another question. How can God be with us if we're wicked? The basket woman answers that question in part. God can and will remove sin from his people. 
the four chariots begin to fill that out even more because God sees and knows and he will judge and triumph over wickedness. But then that final vision of the crown in the temple shows that God will provide a sacrifice. In Zechariah's day, it was the temple. In our day, it's Christ. God will provide a sacrifice and God will rule over his people. Is God still with his people in loss or in devastation or in suffering or hardship? People were asking that question, crying out that question, praying that question in Zechariah's day. And God, through his prophet, answered and said, Am I still with you? Absolutely, yes. And it's way better than you can even imagine. It's way better than your circumstances look in front of you. In Zechariah's day, God was revealing sin. Remember the scroll. God was removing sin. Remember the woman. God was judging wickedness. Remember the chariots. And God was providing salvation and rule. Remember the priest king. Let's ask a similar question for our day now. Is God still with us after a year of upheaval, of loss, and of uncertainty? A year ago, Nate and I were flying back from Jordan. We flew through a dragon storm. Look that one up. It's a real thing. It was the worst flight I think I've ever been on. Nate spent about five hours in the Paris airport laying down and just sick. I was not feeling too great either. It was a horrible experience, and we came back to a country that was freaking out, and it hasn't stopped yet. (laughs) Is God still with us after a year of upheaval, of loss, of uncertainty? Well, as we look at Zechariah, if he was there, he's here. Because his promises for that day extend toward us in even greater measure. Because this story gets only better. He'll continue to do more than you can imagine. If you'll permit me to give another C.S. Lewis reference here. In the last battle, that beautiful scene. Here's what he says. The things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This this is only the cover and the title page. This life is only the cover and the title page. We have an eternity to look forward to. The Old Testament prophets help us greatly to move our gaze from our immediate circumstances to the ultimate circumstances in Christ. God has saved us, God is saving us, and God will save us. For Zechariah's audience, that played out that God had saved them through the exodus and through the return from exile. God was saving them as he provided a new temple, and God will save them in greater ways as he sent Jesus For us, it's it's different. The timeline is different. God has saved us in Christ through that second and greater exodus. God is now saving us through his sanctifying spirit in the church. And God will glorify himself in our future salvation in the new heavens and the new earth where the Lord will dwell 
in our midst. Modern day street level Christianity right now has very few practical categories for dealing with loss. We don't know what to do with loss or suffering. We don't have a very good practical theology of suffering right now. And so the reaction is we feel guilty when we're suffering. We feel like we did something wrong and God is punishing us. Or we deny suffering and say, like, it's not really that bad. The prophets provide us a service in dealing with a life filled with loss and suffering. Yes, they say, life is tough. This is hard. There is loss. But look what God has done. Look what God is doing. And look what God will do. So, what are you looking forward to? Where is your hope? On Friday, I had a meeting in the afternoon with um, a guy by the name of Jean-Gary Auguste. I think that's how he pronounced his last name. He's a Haitian pastor. He's a, a pastored most of his life in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and um, started a Bible school there, and we've sent teams to teach there. I haven't personally worked with Gary, but I was meeting with him and talking with him. Gary is now living in the Dominican Republic because his wife and his son have some significant health concerns and issues, and they were able to go to the DR to, um, to find some uh, medical treatments, and they're now living there and will probably live there for an extended period of time, as many other Haitians are. We're talking to Gary because we're trying to figure out is there, is there a need for training, and he wants to do some training in the Dominican Republic and potentially in other areas, very difficult areas like Aruba, where there are a lot of Haitians. Um, and it's not very, that doesn't sound that difficult to me, but that's what he was saying, so I was following his lead. We asked him just, how, how are things in Haiti right now? Because the situation in Haiti, if you read the news, is, is tough. He told uh, the story of life in Port-au-Prince, where right now there is the constant threat of kidnapping. People just are kidnapped for ransom off the street, constantly, constantly. And so pastors are targeted because their churches might be able to raise money to ransom them. And so in Haiti, you have this culture of kidnapping coupled with economic collapse over the years and earthquakes and hurricanes and ecological disasters that have ruined the country's um, ability to grow many things. There's political corruption like few other places on earth. And so after a while, I just I asked Gary, do, do people have any hope in Haiti? And Gary's a proud man, a godly man, and he, he stopped and he teared up. I've never seen this with a guy like Gary. He teared up, and after 30 seconds or so, he shook his head and he said, you know, Josh, hope was killed in Haiti. I've never had the privilege of working and walking with him, but I started writing a letter that I hope to finish this week because Zechariah applies to Gary. And it applies to that pastor who had to leave his church because he didn't want to be kidnapped. The country has been decimated. Business practices are just corrupt. There's political uncertainty. There's concern over the future. It's just like Zachariah's day. Is God with suffering Haitians? Is God with reeling Americans right now? Yes. And the future is bright. Where is hope found? But it's not in our immediate circumstances. It's in the ultimate triumph of Christ. Zechariah 4 6 says this not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
That's where our hope is found. Let's pray. Father, our hope is in you. It is not in our plans. It is not in our power. It is not in our wealth. It is not in our political hope or a shot in our arm or in a stimulus check in our bank account. Our hope is in your ultimate triumph over evil. Our hope is in your salvation. So lift our gaze from our immediate surroundings to the glory of your future kingdom. And as we marvel at your eternal reign, would you allow us to appreciate and enjoy what is around us? Give us joyful hope. In these shadowy visions of this text, we have seen the hope of your salvation. Thank you that you have fulfilled these puzzling promises through the person and work of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank you that you will fulfill your promises in even greater and more glorious ways at your return. We look forward to that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.